reading this morning is from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thank you, Frank. Man, I love that last song. We should do that song. If only I knew who was in charge of picking songs on a regular basis here. We should probably do that song. Um, well, be, before we get into um, the service, also, by the way, uh, when Tammy was talking about that guy who's up there, that really cute guitar player, what she failed to mention in the story was that next to that cute guitar player was a really odd, awkward, gangly-looking worship leader who is now also your current worship pastor. Um, so uh, I've gotten to know them, and I've known them for years, and I'm so glad that they're a part of what we're doing here. Who was at All of Life Night last night? Who was able to be there? Well, I thought it was great. What do you guys think? It, this, was a, this was an incredible experience for our church, and I know a lot of you guys weren't able to make it. That's okay. We're going to do this again. But I want to just highlight it a little bit. This was a moment for us as a community to meet with our Somali neighbors. Um, so over uh, many years, Josh Prather and other people from Redemption Church have formed incredible relationships uh, with our uh, Somali refugee neighbors through the Somali American United Council and other things like that. And so last night, it was really like, this is a time for us to invite them over, have a meal with them, hear a little bit more about them, learn more about them, uh, and, and just form relationships, and it was an incredible night. I think my favorite part was as it was wrapping up, just looking around and looking at all the conversations happening, looking at them just laughing together, joking with one another, seeing our kids play together. It was really an incredible night. We have a few pictures that I wanted to share um, from last night. You see here, uh, this, uh, people from our community, their community, just sharing a meal together, talking with each other, uh, learning from one another. Uh, if we go on, uh, we'll see. We also were able to... Um, we thought we were going to be hosting a soccer match back there. Oh, they also corrected me. It's called football, it's, uh, but we call it soccer. Um, but they were doing that, and, and what's funny is there's more pictures where this came from, and the beginning of the pictures, you see some of our leaders out there playing soccer with them, and then go to the next picture, then this happened. <laughs> and you'll also see pictures of them panting on the side, uh, just sitting down watching this. Um, they ended up teaching us how to play soccer. Um, but it was just incredible. We got to see uh, our kids interacting and playing together, running together, laughing together. Uh, and there's one more of just a really cute kid. Um, and there's also another cute kid over there. Uh, but, uh, but really, it was, it was just a remarkable night. You'll be hearing more. Uh, we'll, we'll be sharing more of these photos online, and you'll get to see more of that. But it, it was a great event. And, and what I loved about it, um, and we talk about this all the time, that our, part of our outward focus initiatives that we are to love our neighbor. That's really what drives it, is the love of neighbor. But, uh, but we can't really love our neighbor until we know our neighbor. 
until we meet our neighbor, until we talk to our neighbor, until we actually interact with our neighbor and have a shared interaction. And so that's what was great about last night is we began that process of knowing our neighbor so that we could better love them. Um, so please come to the next one. Uh, this was an incredible thing that we got to do. So I, I, I'm looking forward to doing this again. I have, uh, to begin our sermon, I, I have another picture I would like to put up there before we really get into this. All right, so this is, hopefully none of you actually know art because it ruined the illustration in the first service. But uh, I want you guys to guess, and this is, I'm actually asking you to verbally talk back to me right now. Um, who do you think painted this painting? Frank. Somebody said that first service. <laughs> and it's true, Frank. No. Frank did not paint this painting. It's close. Who painted this painting? Does anybody know? Oh, oh, you're not supposed to see that. I didn't see that. Does anybody have any guesses? No, <laughs> this is falling apart. Van Gogh, Rembrandt. Some people have guessed Rembrandt. Some people think him. So this is Pablo Picasso. This is Pablo Picasso, a painting that he painted of his mother at the age of 15. So this is 15-year-old Pablo Picasso who painted this painting. Now, most of us know Picasso by uh, cubism and, and his abstract work. And to the point where many of us, because we only know that por portion of it, there's a lot of people that will ask the question, well, could Pablo Picasso actually paint? And the answer is yes. <laughs> In fact... He mastered it. Pablo Picasso mastered pretty much anything any teacher could ever teach him by the age of 15. Pablo Picasso mastered the art of painting. And because of that, he was then able to go and forge a new path in art. And that's kind of what we know him as. He developed cubism and a, and a lot of abstract art. And we know of paintings like Guernica and other things like that that just pushed the envelope of all of these things. But he was able to do that not because he didn't know how to paint, not because he ignored it or didn't care about painting, but because he mastered it. And I think that that's an important lens in understanding what we're going to talk about today with regard to what Jesus' relationship with the law was. I want to read again what Frank wrote, uh, what Frank, Frank did not write this, what Frank uh, read earlier. <laughs> Frank, Frank is getting a lot of credit this morning. <laughs> For a lot of things. Um, but starting in verse 17, it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches other to be, others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's important that we understand Jesus' relationship with the law. Now when, I'm when it talks about the law, it's, it's, it's a reference back to basically the whole Old Testament. When it, it, whenever you see the law and the prophets, that's their shorthand of saying everything. That's the way they would summarize it. When we talk about the Bible, they say the law and the prophets. What the law is specifically referring to is the first five books of the Old Testament. 
both from creation all the way through Deuteronomy, where God gives the people, this is the way you are to live in all spheres of life, in every way you can possibly imagine. He defines this and says, this is the way you ought to live. This is what my people should look like. Now, there's a lot of people that will look at the Bible and I think misinterpret and under, misunderstand the way Jesus relates to it. They'll look at the New Testament and say, well, there's a different God. There's a different way that God acts. And then the Old Testament is just a bunch of rules and a bunch of hate and a bunch of anger and violence. Then you have Jesus, the man of love. But first off, that's not a very accurate representation of the Old Testament. And that also doesn't understand how Jesus approached the law. See, Jesus understood the law the way it was meant. Jesus understood the law the way it was intended to be received by the people. There's a, there's a misunderstanding of the law that it, it was basically given to people as some sick social experiment by God to make them feel like they needed Jesus. I've heard that so many times. And it completely trashes the whole point of the, whole, of the Old Testament. The law was not given to show us that. The law was given to train us in righteousness, to train us in holiness. The law was given as an act of love by God to show God's people how they can live in his love and in his righteousness. The purpose of the law was to train people, develop people, develop people's hearts in righteousness. And so when Jesus comes onto the scene, he's not saying, I'm throwing this out and I'm starting something new. Just like Pablo Picasso, like I said, didn't just throw everything out and start something new. He says, I'm going to build off of this because I've mastered it. In the same way, Jesus has mastered the law. Jesus masters the law by living out all of what he it says to do. Jesus is the only person who actually did everything that the law asked a person to do. He mastered the law, and in mastering the law, becomes the master of the law. That's what happens in what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish it. I have not come to throw it out. What I have come is to bring the law to its full completion. That you can actually fully see and fully realize why God gave it this, us this in the first place. Why God brought us into this in the first place. But what we'll find as we move forward, although that sounds great, the law that God, that Jesus is bringing forth is not easier than the law we see in the Old Testament. If anything, it's harder. If anything, the demands of it are deeper. See, at the end here, he says, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, then you miss it. You miss the point. You know, the Pharisees, are, I think, are a misunderstood bunch in the New Testament. I think we just think of them as the bad guys. Um, but I think we need, if we understood kind of their, uh, why they formed, why they started, and kind of what their motivations were behind it, I think we actually might find a lot more affinity with them. So at the time the Pharisees were formed, uh, Rome had taken over Jerusalem. Rome had taken over Israel. And what most of the priests and the religious leaders at the time were doing was kind of watering down what the Old Testament did to better fit in with Rome. And so the Pharisee movement was uh, the movement that said, no, we need to take the scriptures seriously. We need to take the law seriously. 
and actually form a people lived out of the law. I, I've gotten flack for this before, but I'm just going to say it again. I think the, the, the best example that I can think of that we might be able to relate to is the evangelical movement. So the very roots of evangelicalism are strikingly similar to the roots of the Pharisees. We have a lot in common with them. So when he's saying that your righteousness exceeds the law of the Pharisees, he wasn't saying it tongue-in-cheek. The Pharisees were a righteous people by all of anybody else's standards. They took the law seriously. They did what they were supposed to do. So when Jesus says, no, you need to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, that would have shocked people. Because in their mind, the Pharisees were the righteous. They were the ones. But what we realize here, and as we move forward, although the Pharisees cared about it, their motivations and why they did it, I would say even their motivations in murdering Jesus was to try to please God. They missed something. There was something missing in their theology. And that was what Jesus came to master. That's what Jesus comes to accomplish. Because what they missed is the heart behind it. See, we, we have to ask in Jesus coming and mastering the law and then thus becoming the master of the law, what then does he do with it? He is the only person in history who can do this. See, because he's the only person in history who actually lived up and is in a place to renegotiate the terms of the covenant. Because as God, he's upheld his end. But as man... As an offspring of Abraham, he's the only one who actually upholds their end. So he's come and actually fulfilled the covenant. He's done what Israel could not do. He lived it. And so then we ask, what does he do with it then? What he's saying here is he's not going to abandon it. He's not going to write necessarily something completely new. What he's going to do is take it to its full completion. And that is that Jesus brings the law to the heart. And we see this all the way back in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, 25 says this, and I'll read it up there. It says, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this command before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. This is as Moses is beginning his great sermon where he tells the people the law once again of what they are to live by before they enter into the land of Canaan. He says, it'll be righteousness for us. The whole reason God gave this to us is so that we would be righteous. So that our hearts would be made to be righteous. To be like God's heart. To be holy and set apart like God is holy and set apart. So what Jesus does with the law is just takes it all the way there. And he does it in a way, as we'll see, that we can follow. But he brings the law to the heart. See, the goal of the law was always to shape people's hearts. This is not a new goal. This has been the same goal. But Jesus does it in a way that we can actually follow. So let's talk about the law of the heart. Let's actually walk through this. Now, this is going to frustrate some people because there, there's, there's so much meat in what I'm about to go through. And I'm barely going to scratch the surface. You could preach six different sermons on these different things. And there's so much in there, and I'm intentionally not going into it because I think that there's also something that we need to learn from all of them together. 
So that's what we're going to do today. Now, we're going to be posting resources. We, can, we would love to have conversations with you if you have any questions about these, which if you're paying attention to these, you should have some questions about what, we're gonna, what, we're, what I'm about to read. But I would love to just talk with you about those then, but we are not going to talk about it now. But I'm just warning you that you might get frustrated with how not detailed I'm going to get and what we're about to do. But let's start. So he begins to talk about the law of the heart first by addressing the issue of murder and anger. He starts with this in verse 21. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell. A fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So he begins by probably the most obvious one. I'm not saying it's the easiest one. I'm just saying it's the most obvious one. He says, you've heard it said, don't murder. He says, that's, that's still true. You shouldn't murder. So hopefully that's clear this morning. Don't murder. That's part of righteousness. But he says, if, that's, if this is the, the goal, if this is the line that you're drawing, just as long as I don't murder somebody, then therefore I'm righteous. But he's saying you've missed it. And as we're going to see in all of these, the righteousness that God demands, the righteousness that Jesus is talking about, the righteousness of the law doesn't just start here at the culmination of sin. It starts at the seed. The righteousness of God starts at the seed of sin. And he says that the seed is what you address. The seed is what needs to go. Because what he's saying here is you can live your whole life and never murder somebody and still not be anywhere near righteousness. If the anger, if hate, if malice, if all those things are in your heart, then it doesn't matter that you don't culminate in murder. The seed is there, and that's not righteousness. So he takes it to the heart. We'll see he does that again in the next one. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now he uses a lot of hyperbole in here. This is hyperbole. You should not cut your arm off or something like that. However, he, what he's saying is he's using that to show this is how serious he's talking about lust. Once again, same with murder. If you, it's over here, and he's not saying adultery is okay. He's saying, obviously, you should not commit adultery. But the seed goes way back here. Righteousness is way back here. It's not how close can you get to this without going over the line. True righteousness starts here. It starts with lust. It starts with the intents of the heart poised at one another. That's where you address righteousness. 
And he's putting this in such serious terms. So we'll see, this continues. Once again, he says this regarding divorce. So it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now this is very different from what they were hearing. At the time, pretty much if a man wanted to divorce his wife, he could. They just could. They didn't have to give a reason. They didn't have to give any justification for it. He just could. Women, women did not have the same right back in those days. But men could just divorce their wives whenever they wanted. What he's saying is that that's not the way of righteousness. Divorce has no place in the life of true righteousness. Now, he does make a mention of this, and it's worth noting that there is exception to that rule actually given by God in the Bible. And he mentions adultery here, but it's actually adultery, abandonment, and abuse. The Old Testament outlines all of those things as an actual cause for divorce, as a cause that this is a covenant that's been broken. However, even there and later on, Jesus even says this, but just know that the heart of God towards marriage is that marriage sticks around. The marriage toughs it out. The marriage pushes it through it. Now, obviously, there's a tension there, and we're not going to go into it, because it also talks about the reality of remarriage and what that means in the life of the church. But I can say this. What it's saying here is that divorce is not an option if you're unhappy, or if you're just, it didn't live up to your expectations, or if your kids have become so problematic that it's just hard for you to connect, or that something else and better came along. That that's where you really found true love. It is not saying any of those are legitimate reasons for divorce. Divorce is something serious. Divorce is something that God says here you should not do. Obviously with those exceptions, so note that. But divorce is serious. He goes on. Regarding oaths. He says, again you have heard that it was said... To those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. He's saying true righteousness does what it says. You do what you say. Whether you say you're going to do something, you do it. You say you're not going to do something, you don't do it. You said you don't need oaths, you don't need contracts. True righteousness just does what it says. This is something that, because uh, I, I, I think that I try to keep my word. However, uh, I also will fall into the trap of using my kids a lot as an excuse to not keep my word. So I'll use the kid excuse a lot, where like we're getting ready, we're going out the door, we really don't want to go to whatever it is that we're going to, and I hear like a sniffle. I'm like, he might be getting sick. I, I think he's getting sick. I, no, he's definitely sick. We can't go. Call him up. Our kids are sick. We can't make it. Um, it's saying that even that is not an excuse. Now, there's also times when we're walking out the door and all of our kids just vomit on one another. In that case, that's a legitimate excuse. You shouldn't go or show up. That is a curse that you're bringing into somebody else's home. 
Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it, it's, it's saying just do what you say. That's what righteousness demands. Do what you say you're going to do. You don't need oaths. You don't need contracts. You don't need to swear by something, pinky promise, anything like that. You just do what you say you're going to do. Now, what's interesting is the first uh, four things that he deals with, he's taking something where he's saying, yeah, this is the line, but the true heart, the true heart of righteousness is in the seed, and we need to deal with the seed. The next two, he actually begins to flip it. He begins to say, now, these are some common sense things that you think would be okay in the Bible. But true righteousness is actually unfair, and it does the opposite. It was in verse 38. He said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. By the way, it says that in the Old Testament. It's a different context, but he's actually quoting scripture right there. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. See, true righteousness is not fairness. True righteousness is radical kindness. It's radical hospitality. It's radical love shown towards one another. It's something we're working through with our children a lot. And I, and I feel for them. I get it. They want things to be fair. Except when it doesn't serve their needs, in which case they don't really care as much about fairness. But they want things to be fair. And I've had to say over and over again, I understand why you want fairness, but that's not what God wants. God is not about fairness. He is about radical love and kindness. He's about radical hospitality. That is the nature of true righteousness. And then he takes that even further in the next passage. In verse 43, he says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Something that makes a lot of sense. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? He says, I know that this is hard, but you're supposed to love your enemies. You're supposed to extend genuine, real, actionable love to those people who would never do that to you. Who would never extend the same courtesy. You are to love your enemies. I mean, he's saying here, he's like, look, it's easy to love your friends. It's easy to love your family sometimes. But loving your enemies, that, is, that doesn't make any sense. It goes against every, I think, ounce of, uh, of, of rationale and reason we have in our bones. But that's what he calls us to. And it, it's interesting because right here he actually roots it in how God treats us. He says, love your enemies because look at how God treats his enemies. It says he causes the sun to rise on both the righteous and the unrighteous. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. We typically think of rain as this gloomy thing. And I remember thinking that, thinking, 
Well, that's weird. So he just sends gloominess on both just and the unjust. But rain back then was life. If it didn't rain, people died because food wouldn't grow, because water wouldn't exist. So when he's saying he sends the rain on the just and the unjust, what he's saying is he knows that these people that he's giving life to, that he's providing for, he's, he's allowing food to grow in, 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 for these people, hate him. But he does it all the same. And because he does that for his enemies, that's how we treat our enemies. That's true righteousness. Now he closes with a statement, and we're going to have to work on this statement. Not in changing it, but in understanding it. It says in 48, he says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. If it wasn't clear enough what righteousness is, he very much so clarifies it in the last sentence. It's like, no, this isn't something easier that I'm giving you, that I'm calling you to. This isn't something uh, that's going to be more manageable that I'm calling you into. The expectation of righteousness that God places on his people is perfectly to be like him. And we're going to talk about that and what that means because we do need to work through that. But that should sink in. This is not a small statement. This is a hard thing to hear. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, as, as we read this through and as I've just experienced these passages in, in, within the church, there's typically three reactions that I'll see come from this as we read this. And the first is despair. That we read this and we look at it and they just say, there's just no way. I just can't do it. And there's despair. It's very similar to the feelings that I have when I try to ask Lauren where we should go to eat for dinner. It's a very similar feeling. I list off literally, like I go through like Yelp and list off like every restaurant that exists within like a 50 square mile radius. Just nothing. There's no decisions. No choices made. Just despair. (laughs) She's right there. Hating every minute of what I'm saying right now. But just, just like, like, it's the same thing that we feel, and I, I understand it. Because from our perspective, what God is saying is that if you're part of my kingdom, this is what I expect. But if we have been around for any period of time in this world, we know that we're not doing that. We might not be murdering people, but we have anger. You know, we, we, we might struggle with all of these things. We might not be going to its full completion, but we feel this stuff. So when we see this, knowing our own hearts, knowing what's expected of us, a common reaction, I understand it. I don't believe it's the right one, and we'll talk about that, but I understand people feel despair. The next uh, reaction I hear from people is militancy, is they just say, all right, We're going to dig in and we're just going to do this. We are going to be righteous. We are going to be holy. We have these clubs. We get really into it. And this is what I find with all of those things. First off, they're usually not any more moral. They're usually not very good at it. But what happens is they just become a bunch of jerks. We all just become a bunch of jerks about it. We're not any more moral. We're just immoral jerks now. 
And that's what happens when we become militant about it. We, we really dig in and say, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to really do this. I can, I can do this. I can never lust again. I'll cut my arm off if I don't. Or more importantly, I'll cut your arm off if you don't. We get militant about it. We get mean. We become jerks about it. And that's not the proper way to understand and react to this. The last one is that we test the boundaries, which is really all that the Pharisees were doing, by the way. As we test the boundaries, we're like, okay, I get it. So the line's not murder. It's anger. But what's anger? Start asking those questions. What, what qualifies as anger. Yeah, I get it. We don't, don't, don't commit adultery, but what's lust? What does lust actually mean? And we'll try to figure out and narrow this definition to the point where we can say, okay, well, now I can just go up to this. As long as I don't cross this line, then I'm safe. And once again, it misses it. Because what Jesus is not pointing to is some new boundary that you can walk up to and not cross. He's going all the way to the root of it. He's saying, no, it, the, the fact that you're even asking the question shows that you've missed it. Shows that you've missed the point. So I understand all these reactions. I understand them. I understand how we might read this and feel despair. Because if the expectation is perfection, we're not perfect. How do we reconcile that? Or we might respond by saying, well, out of obedience. I'm just going to try to do it. Or I'm going to test the boundaries. I'm going to negotiate the terms of this to better suit my own nature. Because we feel like this is an impossible request. But I don't think that's the way of understanding it. See, God does expect this. We need to understand this. He's not suggesting these things. He's not suggesting this form of righteousness. He is saying that this is what he expects from his people. I, feel, I like to think of it very similarly to uh, kind of the way we just think of our household with our kids. So we have uh, three kids. Um, you know, uh, if we think of it covenantally, they are in covenant with us. They're always going to be our sons. They're always going to be our children. But with that comes an expectation of how they're going to act. And we make it very clear, this is, these are our expectations, and when they don't live up to them, they get disciplined until they finally figure it out, this is what it means to be a Kimmel. These are the expectations we have. Some of them are a little more basic, like don't hit your brothers, like don't hit each other when somebody steals your toy, just don't do that, basic stuff. Don't wake me up by licking my face, <laughs> things like that, common real expectations that we expect Kimmel boys to live up to, ones that we're still working on currently, right now, to this day. Um, but even bigger ones, we, we, we say, like, it, we expect you to be honest. We expect you to be humble. We expect you to be generous. We expect you to be grateful. And we're not saying this as, like, some suggestion, and we're not saying it to make them feel bad, to make them feel despair. We're saying, I know that you're going to live into this. And we're going to help you through discipline, through encouragement, through, through modeling this, through working with you, with you to get there. And I think that's similar to this. I, in fact, I, you can almost think, like, I've seen it in other people's homes, not in our home, but I've seen it in other people's homes where 
they'll kind of write this stuff really cool in cool ways up like on a chalkboard or something like that, like the rules and expectations of the house. It's very Pinteresty, very cool. Um, I think of the Sermon on the Mount kind of like that. Jesus is writing the house rules up in a clear way so that we all know what we're talking about when he's talking about righteousness. He's writing them up there saying, this is what I mean. This is what you need to understand about what I'm saying. So with this carries an expectation. Now I promise this is actually a hopeful message and we should find hope in what Jesus is saying. Because I know that we can't do this on our own. But because of what Jesus did in mastering it, he gives us finally the tool we need to actually do it. And that is, I, I think, the, the true way, and that's the way of the Holy Spirit. We cannot understand this passage without understanding what the Holy Spirit is in the life of a believer. Jesus lived the deeper law. And so now through the Spirit, the promise is that we will too. Now, this comes back to this last verse. It says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Another way to translate that word perfect, and what's really carried with that word, is the idea of completion. It's the idea of coming into this fulfillment. Just as Christ has come and fulfilled the law, just as God is complete in his righteousness, is that we will become complete in his righteousness. And this word that's translated, you therefore must, another way of translating this is, you will become this is just a future indicative verb. This is a promise. This is not a scolding. This is not some aspirational thing that he knows we can't accomplish. He's saying that if you are in the kingdom, if the spirit is in you, if the law of the spirit is thriving in you, this is your eventual outcome. This is what will happen. Romans 8 I think Romans 8 is, is, is really an explication on this. It's a way uh, that we understand and orient ourselves to the righteous demands of the Sermon on the Mount. It says in verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. L listen to this. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be, might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, and he's talking to us right now, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life, spirit is life because of righteousness. 
the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The promise is that with the Holy Spirit, God is working this to completion in your life. God is working this to completion in our life. When Jesus is looking at this, he's describing the church and what the church will be. Now, as we also see in Romans in the chapter before, as long as the flesh exists, there will be a tension. There will be a battle. That's why I love that song that we sang before, Absent from Flesh. Those are words from Isaac Watts. Let me read that again. It says, absent from flesh, O blissful thought, what joy that moment brings. Freed from the blame that sin has brought from pain and death and its sting. So we know that this will not be fully realized in death. I'm not saying that all of a sudden you're going to reach perfection. You're going to be perfectly moral and then you'll die. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what I'm saying. However, what I'm saying is that the work of the Spirit in your life has begun now. That we are moving towards this. God is working us towards completion now. Which means that the longer we are in Christ, the more we should look like him. The more we should act like him. The more true this should be in our hearts. And if we've been Christians our whole lives and there's been no change, and there's no difference, and we don't look any more like Christ, then we need to have a conversation. And we need to ask some serious questions. Because this is what it means, that as the Spirit works in us, we are working towards this end. I want to close by maybe re-envisioning this, because even if that's true, I can understand why after reading this, we might still feel heavy. Because God's calling us to something hard. God's calling us to something that is so counterintuitive and counter-natural to how we would normally live. What he's calling us to is, to something hard. But I don't think we should be hopeless. I want to reimagine this because I think the Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to live the beautiful law of the kingdom of God. It is an invitation to something beautiful. When Jesus comes onto the scene, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We need to understand that this is the kingdom that he's inviting us to. Think of this with me. Imagine the kind of world that Jesus is describing in these verses. I want you to imagine a world without anger, without hatred, without malice. I want you to imagine your home right now, your family, without any anger. It just doesn't exist. You are incapable of anger. I want you to imagine your jobs without anger, what that would actually look like. I want you to imagine, this is a fun one, what this election would look like without any anger. That it just wasn't there. It couldn't exist. I want you to imagine a world without lust, where spouses just could trust each other and not worry about what's going on in their minds. Where men and women could interact with each other without feeling like they're going to be demeaned or compared or insulted or brought down. Imagine those kinds of relationships. Imagine that kind of world. Imagine a world where our deepest covenants are honored. And they can actually come to their fullest completion. Where divorce is not on the table because there's no reason to get divorced. 
where covenantal marriage actually just brings about holiness, brings about joy, brings about more deeper unity. Imagine that kind of world. Imagine a world where people actually just do what they say, where you don't have to read the fine lines of a contract, worried that your partner is going to just do something bad to you, where you don't have to send constant reminders saying, no, we we said we're going to meet at this time. You need to make sure you're there. Where people just say it and do it. Imagine that kind of world. Imagine a world where instead of people retaliating against each other, their first impulse was to show radical kindness. Where their first question they ask when meeting anybody, when stepping into any situation, is what do I have that this person needs? Imagine that kind of world. Imagine a world where love legitimately triumphs over hate, where love is what defeats our enemies. Not war, not battle, not anything like that, but love, where kindness is what overcomes that. Imagine that kind of world, because what you're imagining right now is not a myth, it's not something far out there, it is the kingdom of heaven, and it is what God has invited us into now. That is the world that we can live in. That is the church. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can start living in it. This isn't us digging in. This isn't us thinking, I'm going to do better and better and better. This is the power of Christ in you, performing this, bringing you to this, so that the church looks more and more like this. Imagine what this world that God is inviting us into, this kingdom, what that would look like in the midst of this world that we live in. Because guys, this is the life we've always dreamed of. This is the kind of relationships that we long for without even knowing it. This is the kind of world that we want to be in. This isn't a call to slavery. This isn't a call to moral oppression and repression. This is a call to true life. It's the call to live a life of freedom, of flourishing, and ultimately of being in Christ, of true, real righteousness. And that is something that God is calling us to, not as something way out there, but as something we have now because of the Spirit. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for this incredible gift that you've given us. Lord, that not because of who we are or what we have done, but because of who you are and what you have done, we can enter in to the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we can enter in to the kingdom that you have established, this beautiful kingdom with its beautiful law and beautiful ethic that we can just walk into, Lord, through your power in the spirit. Lord God, I ask you that you would form us. Lord, you would cultivate our hearts. Lord, you would eradicate the seeds of sin within us. Lord, and give us true joy. Lord, give us a true heart of kindness. Lord of righteousness, one that as we get closer and closer to you, it looks more and more like you. Lord, we pray this in your name and in your power. Amen.